0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to IFTF's Future Now, a podcast where we spotlight the researchers, scientists, and innovative thinkers who are shaping the trajectory of our collective future. I'm Jean Hagan, IFTF executive producer, and in this episode, we're taking a departure from our season's focus on equitable enterprises to bring you a fascinating interview with Ethan Moloch, author, professor, and researcher at the Wharton School at UPenn. Ethan joins IFTF host and researcher Toshi Hu for a provocative conversation on how AI might transform education and learning in the future. They share insights on the practical implications of generative AI and just how it will transform teaching and learning at scale. This conversation promises to change the way you think about the future of work and education. I know it did for me. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thanks, Ethan, for joining us today on Future Now. You could just get us started by sharing a little bit about yourself, a little background, you and your
2: work sure my name is ethan malik i'm a professor at the Wharton school of the university of pennsylvania i am a researcher in entrepreneurship and innovation i've been an entrepreneur as well but i also have been very interested in how we transform teaching and learning at scale with new interactive technologies so i've been building games for teaching for a long time and that led me into the world of ai fairly early and thinking about the practical implications of generative ai and that's sort of where most of my effort has been focused on recently
1: Fantastic. Now, I think the whole world is slowly waking up to this idea that AI might actually not just be science fiction, it might be something we need to be paying attention to. Could you talk a little bit about how long you've been thinking about AI and how your thinking has
2: has evolved over time? So I actually have been sort of AI adjacent for a long time. So I worked at the MIT Media Lab with the AI group and some of the sort of founding people in the field. I worked with AI people for some DARPA projects, but I'm not a technical person. Don't code, I'm not a computer scientist. Although I code now, thanks to AI. Most of <laughs> the statistical programming languages before that. And yeah. so what happened, though, is I've been looking at this space for a long time as both someone who designs educational games and thinks about education, what can these systems do? And when the large language models came out and started to do some kind of fun prediction writing tasks. I actually assigned my students the task of cheating with those systems. And the funny thing was they were cheating right before ChatGPT came out. So I was very aware of the limitations of these systems and blown away by what these new versions did.
1: Going back to November, ChatGPT was introduced to the world, but it wasn't the beginning of AI. So what, what changed at that point?
2: So... AI has been a lot of things over time, right? It's there's been ups and downs, it's been around for 70, 80 years at this stage. And so there's been lots of enthusiasm and lots of sort of false hope. The sort of what AI has really been about for the last decade has about, been about prediction. So mostly that was about sort of mathematical models. I'm Amazon. How what will, what will get somebody to buy my next product? What will market my market's growth look like next year? Right. So those kind of predictive models. Those are also applied to things like self-driving cars. Right. These kind of predictive approaches. So in I believe it was 2017, a new paper came out called "Attention is All You Need" that introduced a new model for AI's based on what's called the Large language model. It was still prediction, but instead of predicting what product you were going to buy, it predicted what the next word was going to be in a sentence. And it solved a lot of the problems around how do we think about language and create language with AI. And so a bunch of companies released these sort of early large language models, they're called, including ChatGPT 3, which is the older model. And they were all neat but not incredibly powerful. And then something happened in November when ChatGPT was released. It was released along with a larger model called GPT 3.5, which is the same model used in ChatGPT. And something happened when it crossed 125 billion parameters, whatever the size of the model is. And suddenly it the capabilities of the model increased 100 times over what the previous models have been. And that has increased again with GPT-4. And it's not 100% clear why that's the case. There's a lot of debate over this. Stephen Wolfram argues that basically that was a large enough model that it came to understand the sort of secrets of human language and the deep structures of human language, human thought, but we don't really know. So there was a sudden increase in capabilities of models, and that's why they burst into the public consciousness. Not that they weren't around before, but something happened to make them much more capable.
1: What were some of your reactions the first days you got a chance to play with ChatGPT in November? What what kind of clicked for you? What did you notice at first? What was surprising?
2: So the first thing I did was actually have it create, like a lot of people do, have it create some poems. GPT-3 couldn't rhyme to save its life, right? 3.5 was producing rhymes, right? And it was producing coherent, pretty interesting rhymes. And then I tried different writing styles and that worked well. And then I was trying some analytical tests that was producing that. So it was this series of like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like I have this whole Twitter feed where I'm gradually discovering all the weird things it can I could do. Write a wedding toast between a an elf and an alien. And it was and I was like, whoa, it could do all these things. So I think that was the kind, and that was... A couple of days before ChatGPT was released. I was just using the Playground at that point, the earlier version. And then Chat was released. It was very clear, it did a lot of things. I immediately gave a lecture to all my students about it two days after chat was released. By the end of that class, these were entrepreneur students at, at Penn, undergrads. By the end of the class, somebody had already used it to code their product demo using a library they never used before. I posted on Twitter, by the end of the next day, they had gotten calls from two venture capitalist scouts asking if they were looking for funding. By the Thursday, two days later, 60% of my classes used chat GPT to do everything from sending, from learning how to do things to coming with marketing slogans. Like It was very clear what we found here. It sounds like students were very
1: quick to experiment and and perhaps even exploit the systems. Could you talk a little bit about how your fellow educators or just the broader educational community has been responding since ChatGPT
2: has come out? So I think I get some credit for sounding braver than I am because one of the things that got me some attention early on was I made ChatGPT required on my classes. I made my syllabus require it. Articles were being written about this like it was an extremely controversial position. I don't think it's extremely controversial. I don't. I think that as educators we realized there wasn't much we could do about this system and it was radically changing a lot about our approach to education. I think the question was: Is this something we could slow down or stop? Is this something that we need to embrace? That we need. And my feeling has always been that we have to embrace it. I think that there a lot of people would wish it wasn't there or wish they could keep teaching the way they did or worried about the implications for education. I think that's all legitimate. But I I think that there's sort of the world as it is doesn't really allow us a lot of time to worry about that.
1: How would you say that the educational community's perspective has matured over this time?
2: I mean, I, it, we're talking about months, not years, right? So I think the answer is we don't have... We don't have answers to all of these sets of things right now. I mean, I think that there's a, a sort of thousand flowers blooming, right? People are picking different directions to head in and trying experiments. We don't have a lot of data yet. The systems keep increasing capability, right? And already in education, people think this is detectable. It's not. it in will not work in the long term to detect these things. It already doesn't. As I've said, the cat is out of the bag, and there are cats everywhere. Like there's so many implications that it's hard to just pick one of them and say, "What about cheating?" Well, also, what about having a universal tutor? available to everybody what about having an explainer so people stop raising their hands in my class because they'd rather ask the ai questions what do we do with all these things it's a lot of things happening at once so then what world are we training people for lots of open questions
1: Yeah, you have a really great essay on the future of education in the world of AI on your substack, One Useful Thing. And I, I, let's see, I think you said you pulled out three fairly safe bets. You said AI cheating will remain undetectable and widespread, like you just said. AI technology will, will remain ubiquitous. And then AI tutoring will be excellent, but not a replacement for classrooms. So let's dive into number two. Like, How ubiquitous do you think this will be and how inevitable do
2: you think this is? So, I think that Ubiquitous is already done. Being, which in creative mode is GPT-4, is available in 169 countries for free. Like, it's out there. Like, there's not, this is not a question, right? It is going to be, it's everywhere, it's undetectable. It's ubiquitous that's already done right there is evidence that like this definitely does some of the teaching we did in the classroom but it does the worst kind of teaching we did in the classroom so we've known for a long time that lectures are a terrible way to teach right the right way to teach is to engage people with active learning one way to do that is what's called a flipped classroom where you have people learn outside of class the content and then you practice it inside of class which has always had mixed results because we had trouble producing good content outside of class you record a video of a student of a professor teaching it still was a lecture it wasn't that great. Now we have the option for interactive tutoring outside of class that frees up academics, professors, instructors, teachers to do more interesting stuff inside a class.
1: And just going back to number one there too, cheating will remain undetectable and widespread. I mean, how can the world of teaching respond to cheating at this point if that's going to be so ubiquitous as well?
2: I think that's ultimately going to be one of the least interesting impacts of AI. I mean, first of all, there were already 40,000 people employed full-time in Kenya writing essays for UK students, right? <laughs> like people were cheating all the time, right? I, I, we just saw today that Clegg at the time of this was – which was basically – especially a flashcard company, but it was really just an answer company. Their stock price basically crashed because people were using GPT for answers and stuff. People were already cheating, right? Pretty widespread. So people were already cheating. Now have a different tool to cheat with. I don't know how much of a difference that makes. For the people who weren't already cheating, we have to redefine what cheating is. Is it cheating to use AI to help you come up with ideas for a project? Is it cheating for AI to use AI to help you solve a problem with a sentence you can't make work? Is it okay for it to ask it for inspiration for a tone? I don't know. So we have to think the, the entire world of work has changed. The world of education has to change too. But it's not actually that exciting, right? In some ways, because we've already had this problem. Calculators made certain kinds of cheating easy. So now we have some classes where calculators are used and some classes where they're not. We test you sometimes without calculators. So there's test you with calculators. We could we could solve the writing problem that way, right? The broader implications are much wider than cheating.
1: What do you think are some of the other misconceptions that maybe the the world or specifically the educational community has about AI at this point?
2: What are the misconceptions? I mean, I think that people just think this is a future thing. Everyone is sick of hype. I mean, I'm talking to you about the future, right? A lot of the futures that I I also – I. I, was, I worked with futurists for a while. things like that. And it's about predicting probabilities for potential futures that are five years away, ten years away. You look at this nascent technology and you're like, hey, look, this is going to be something, right? So everyone's exhausted from blockchain and from crypto and from Web3 and from VR and AR, all of which, like, the future was imminent. So everyone's like, ah, oh, this is another one. And guess what? I was smart for sitting out those. And I'm going to sit on this one, too. But it's here. It's already done. Like, the, the die is cast. This is not technology does not have to advance a day past today for a uh, fundamental transfer- transformations in how we work and how we how we learn. Like, and it's available. I mean, billions of people have access to this tool. It's not something you have to wait for a system integrator to come on. It's not like once Web3 rolls out, it's going to be incredible. Wait to see when your bank uses. Like today you could use these tools.
1: That's something we talk about a lot that unlike other technologies where you have to maybe go out and seek out a VR headset and then be willing to put it on, that you don't have to adopt these technologies. These technologies are adopting our existing tools. So where, where do you think that people will start to most likely see AI seep into their lives?
2: Everywhere. I mean, so, no, I'm not joking about everywhere because I, I'm not, and that's not that's not in a AI is going to wake up and kill us all kind of way. That is in a literally everywhere kind of way. Why everywhere? Well, first of all, people are using it, adopting it. So, a lot of people you're talking to, I've found a lot of people use it secretly. So, that HR report you're getting may be AI generated, right? So, you're probably interacting with a lot more than you think already. A lot of my students who are not good writers are mysteriously amazing writers. There's, not, there's a reason for that. And that's great. They should be, right? We shouldn't force people to be bad writers. That's that's one thing. Another thing is that Microsoft is about to release Copilot for Office, which means that AI GPT-4 is going to be built into it. Microsoft Word and Excel, and I mean, this is the tool everybody uses around the planet. Suddenly, you can just say, "Write a report with the following four bullet points," it will write a report for you. People are going to be doing that, right? This is not making Microsoft is not making discovery hard; they're making it easy. We have a widely adopted tool, like it's it, the ubiquity of it is not a question. Look, we are seeing performance improvements of 30 to 80 percent on many white collar tasks. That speed power was 18 to 22 percent. Right? Like, this is such a large thing that if you don't adopt it, you're going to feel pretty dumb pretty soon. Like, I talk to people who are at workplaces where GPT is banned and they do all their work on their phone because they would, why would they bother handwriting things? It feels like that again. Right.
1: (laughs) And you bring up a good point. You're not just an educator, but you happen to be in a, a business school. So, what are your thoughts right now and how you can prepare young people for entering a a workforce now in which AI is going to be
2: as ubiquitous as you describe? This is something where I could use your scenarios because we don't know, right? Like, if you look at the original, people talk about the singularity as this moment where AI wakes up and is smarter than us. But the original sort of interpretation of that was this was a point where you can't predict anything past that point, realistically. I've never seen a moment like that till now, right? What does work look like four years from now is very hard to predict, right? I mean, we have papers in, in that came out in JAMA showing that GPT-4, without any additional training, produces better and more empathetic results that are referred by patients than doctors. It passed the neuroscience exam. It does, uh, you know, it like, it's more of a list of stuff it does do, right? So the question is, how do we adapt to that? And by the way, there's almost perfect correlation between how much your job overlaps with AI and how well-paid you are, how creative you are at work, and and how educated you are. We don't know what the world looks like with this. So the whole group of people who are under automation threat, who've never been under automation threat before. We don't understand what the world's going to look like here. So what I do is I tell students they have to use these systems, get used to them, stay flexible. And like that If you, the only safe bet I could tell you is join a regulated industry because they have the longest time, right? Something with lots and lots of federal requirements and HIPAA issues. But other than that, I don't know what the future looks like.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult time to try to predict the future, for sure. <laughs> and just in terms of talking about literacy, that's something we also emphasize a lot. My I actually run a lab called the Emerging Media Lab, which has been a lot about getting heads and hands on experience with tools, building literacy and these new emerging technologies. Right now, there's a lot of ways for people to build literacy. And a lot of what we talk about and some of what you've mentioned today is about the capabilities. I, we also talk about how equally important it, it is to understand what are the limitations and the pit Falls these technologies. Can you talk a little bit about some of the limitations and, and some of the ways
2: these new AI tools fall short right now? I mean, so right now, they the number one problem they have is they hallucinate, which means they make up facts, especially if you ask them to do things. You can think about AI as wanting to do three things, basically. Make you happy, give you the right answers, and not embarrass the companies that created AI. And so depending on the situation, it can emphasize making you happy over giving you accurate information, especially if you use something like GPT, which is not currently connected to the internet versus Bing that is. And, and so it will hallucinate, make up completely reasonable sounding facts. Now, I think this is a problem, but I don't think it's a long term problem, right? I think people are too fixated on this. We've already seen hallucinatory rates drop considerably. I think they'll consider continue to drop, and I think people who are worrying about that is the is is. I don't know if that's a long-term issue. I think that if you think this is like people, it's more accurate than people, but less accurate than the robot you thought you were going to get for AI. I mean, other limitations of the systems, right, are for right now, they have relatively limited memory and what they could do. It's hard to can't necessarily teach them new things. And then there's all of the other sort of concerns that come with having a tool that we don't quite understand what it does or how it works. <laughs>
1: yeah I mean that that is an interesting aspect of this, the emergent side of this that that's something we try to talk with folks about. Can you talk a little bit about how we don't know this works and and, and,
2: and why that is? we know technically how it works right we know exactly what an llm does it it is a it's a neural network transformer it's trained on on billions of pieces of online content and it has created a series of relationships between all the words or parts of words tokens in in english apparently sumerian and a bunch of other languages that we didn't know it was learning and then it can it's predicting the next token right so we know how technically it works we don't actually know why it's so good at what it does and why it's doing stuff so. like in maxes out every creativity test we give it, every human creativity test. Now, they're not great tests of creativity, but they were great enough to be able to differentiate creativity from humans, right? It like I could tell it like crazy stuff. Like the other, just yesterday, I was using the new code creator and I was saying, show me something numinous, which is like something, like a spark of the divine. And it gave me a great description, showed me the, Mandel, I created the Mandelbrot set. Then I'm like, okay, show me something eldritch, right? A very Lovecraftian word. And its decision was it created a Lovecraft Markov chain generator that created fake Lovecraft passages using Lovecraft's original writing without any prompting from me. It's generating pa- – like crazy, right? It is generating it, – so it is genuinely doing interesting creative stuff that we weren't expecting. It's solving problems it shouldn't be able to solve. It should be able to play chess. It plays chess, right? And I think there was a lot of early on saying, okay, this is just because it's re- it's training data. I see a lot less – skepticism about that as people use assistants. as war. It's definitely doing things we don't expect it to do. Again, one model is that it's just a sophisticated enough liar at this point that we can't tell the difference between lies and truth. So it all seems true to us. It's possible that Wolfram is right. And basically we've created a model of a brain without meaning to do that. Um, we don't really know the answer. It's not. It's clearly not sentient in the way that I think people are worried about being sentient, but it's a lot smarter than we would expect it to be. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I know many folks, including yourself, have struggled to find good analogies and metaphors. Could you talk a little bit about some of the analogies and metaphors that are are, are you attempt to, that, that, that folks are attempting to use and what are the flaws that might, might – how, how they might fall short?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, the first thing is everyone thinks like AI from the movies, like Terminator or Hal, right? Relentlessly logical computers that are sort of like have a mission and execute it under all cool logic, right? But – this AI acts a lot more like people, right? It's it's all like hot emotion. You can get it mad at you. It plays into the role. If you if you act mad, it will pick up on that and try and echo that back to you because it thinks that's what you want. Like it doesn't do math well, right? You can make it do math better with plugins, but it is really good at creative tasks. So that whole idea of logical, un, unfeeling AI whose head explodes when you try and tell it, what does love mean? thats not doesn't work as an analogy. Then there's this analogy that was early on for technically LLMs are stochastic parrots. They just repeat back things that they've learned. That's not that helpful either because they seem to be doing creative stuff they've never seen before. How do we process that is a hard question, right? There, we th- sometimes think about them as like search engines like Google, but this is a bad search engine. It's not searching the internet. It, Bing has access to the internet and is searching the internet, but it is doing something very different. It's doing logic and operation. So that's not a very good model. So it is not the thing we thought it would be. The the advice I give most people is think of it like an intern that wants to make you incredibly happy and lies to you sometimes and is infinitely fast. That intern for GPD three was like a fifth grader. The, for 3.5, the original ChatGPT model, it was probably like a sophomore in high school. Now, for a lot of things, we're talking about like a first-year PhD student kind of level of, of quality. I know you've been
1: doing experiments with a number of different LLM tools, like namely BARD and ChatGPT. Could you talk a little bit about what you see as the strengths and weaknesses? And, and and I've actually seen you done
2: some really interesting experiments where you use them together. So there are really three companies that make large-scale LLMs available to the public right now. I'm sure there will be others soon. There's also some open source models and stuff, but they're just not that capable yet, right? So if you're talking about highly capable models, there's three of them. One is by OpenAI, and that's what Microsoft uses as well, and that's the GPT we've been talking about, right? And the major models are GPT-4, which is used by Bing and Creative Mode and ChatGPT if you pay for the subscription, and GPT-3.5, which is the cheap, free version of ChatGPT. Then there's Google, which pioneered this space, but for a variety of reasons, has really failed to exploit it, has released BARD, which is a pretty mediocre LLM. I mean, it would be a miracle if we didn't have all these other systems, but we do, and it's just much worse than any of the other models out there for right now. Now, Google could change that overnight at any time. They have not yet. Right? And then we have Anthropic, which is sort of OpenAI's competitor, trying to do in some ways a more a more sane AI, and they've released something called Claude, which is about the equivalent of GPT 3.5. So GPT four is the most powerful public model, and that's Bing's creative mode and OpenAI's premium product. And so those are the models, right? Now, are other people training models right now? Definitely, right? There's lots of small models. Meta has models and and Amazon has models, but nothing has been released at the scale of what OpenAI and Claude and Bing have done. done.
1: I've noticed that you've done some experiments using both ChatGPT as well as Bing, and under the hood, they're both... OpenAI products, right? But you've used them in different ways. Like Bing has access to the web, where most of ChatGPT doesn't necessarily have, uh, unless you have access to the plugins, right? Now.
2: Yeah. yeah. You have to learn your model, right? So, so Bing has internet access. There is an alpha version of ChatGPT that has internet access. It's much worse than Bing's. So Bing, if you want information for the world, if you want to do like research, Bing is your tool. Bing also currently has access to Dolly's image creation tool, which is not yet available but would be soon on OpenAI's tool. On the other hand, ChatGPT has just released a bunch of modes that make it really, really good at programming like scary good at programming, because it can now execute its own code. So you can give it a data set, and it can just do work on it. And that is pretty stunning. And that is something that is just available in ChatGPT for early users. So you have to just stay up to date, things are happening on a week by week basis. At this point, making it really hard to sort of give you solid advice that I don't know when the podcast will air. But even if it's five days from now, the world will be a slightly different place.
1: Yeah, I've been giving some presentations recently where after I finished the presentation, there's three announcements that completely change the perspective on things I've talked about. So, Can you talk a little bit about just the rate of change? I mean, I, th- this is pretty unprecedented for any technology. Could you just give people a sense of how quickly this is moving and, and how difficult it is to stay on top of? I mean-
2: because we've got a bunch of stuff all happening at once. It's really hard to know what's going on, right? So the bunch of stuff happening at once is we no one actually really knows the cap- capability of LLMs, right? So that's the first kind of question. What do they do well? What do they not do well? We just don't know that much. And even the companies releasing this don't have enough staff. They're not really looking at this. They're not studying in advance. They're releasing stuff, right? Google spent a lot of time studying this, but has been reluctant to release, right? Read into that what you will. So what happened is OpenAI kicked off an arms race. Right. And so people are releasing products left to right. Microsoft is integrating a GPT four into everything it does, right? With completely unknown consequences that are exciting and actually kind of anxiety producing all at the same time. I think they're trying to do it very responsibly, but we don't know what the long-term outcomes of any of this stuff is gonna be. I think that the system capability, because we don't know why it got so good in the first place, we don't really and, and we don't really know what the next model is going to look like. We're being told GPT-5 is not in training. I don't know whether that's true or not. We don't know what other systems are underway, but it doesn't take that much to train up these systems to do stuff. And they seem to learn, right? So part of the tool is like, what tools can we give them? And what happens when they get tools? What happens if they connect to the world? We're learning that every day. So the thing is, we've got a lot of complex stuff interacting along with a technology technology curve that's moving faster than Moore's Law. We're at about a 10 times performance improvement a year rather than a two times performance. As I think we all learned in the pandemic, we're not good about thinking about exponential curves and there's just too many of them happening at once. And and the thing is A lot of these tools don't require big teams, right? So these core models, these foundational models that we're talking about, like GPT-4, those require a billion dollars and a lot of time. Not necessarily a lot of staff, but a lot of time because you have to train the system, which requires a lot of computing power. But at the same time, we have organizations like MidJourney releasing image generators that can create photorealistic images from words with teams of 20 people. Right? Like, so we have a lot of weird disruption all happening at the same time and pr- interacting with each other in ways we can't predict, which is creating a lot of interesting excitement.
1: Yeah, you mentioned both excitement and anxiety. I mean, something that we often talk about at IFTF is not just what you what do you think about the future, but how do you feel about the future? Certainly a lot of emotions. We've even seen like the five stages of grief that people go through when they're learning about AI and the potential disruption. I'm curious, like I me, mean, what what makes you anxious about
2: all what's happening right now? I mean, so the – I I tend to think of it as you need your three sleepless nights. Like there is – people don't really – they seem to bounce off of AI a lot, right? I mean, very smart people are like, I tried it and I didn't touch it again. I'm like, why? I, well, it didn't really – like people – it, there's something very comfortable with this technology right because again it's much more human than we thought it would be and so what i find is there's a moment when you play with this and i'm sure it happened to you maybe maybe i'm assuming but like where you're like oh god and then you stay up for three nights in a row and like a mix of like <laughs> using the system and like i can't believe it does that and then try to go back to bed and like oh god what does this mean for my kids what does it and then you try use it again, you're like oh no and like Right and like i did, I don't know if you had that experience the, the oh yeah, first the right three
1: time. nights, first three nights,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right absolutely, right, and then after that, there's sort of a retrying to put your place together in the universe, right, like what does this mean? we don't really know, we talk about singularities where we have no idea what does this mean to be human versus machine. Uh, how is this getting so close to human thought? Like there's a lot of stuff you struggle with, right? And then there's just the idea that like there's no instruction manual. You just have to make this stuff up. No one can tell you how to use the systems to do your job. You are the only one that can do that. These sets of of revelations, I think are really, they come one after another and they're very challenging. And the result is we don't know. Like there has never been such a moment, I think in recent history where humans are just thrown cards in the air and be like, well, let's figure out what happens now. And I don't know who's gonna be the winners and losers. I'm usually pretty good at like, then you're an entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurship professor. I've seen a lot. I'm pretty good at predicting the next year or two, right? I work with some of the Phil Tetlock, who's like the master of prediction. Like we have some visibility over the next few years. We don't anymore right? I don't know what the future looks like. And that's deeply disturbing. I don't know what this means about the place in the universe. I don't know when this thing stops. Like, are we done now? Or are we? is this going to get 10 times better? 100 times better? Oh, my God, are the AGI people right? Could that be true? Like, I've spent so much time quietly giggling at them. And then I was like, oh, my God, what if they're correct? I don't know. I don't think anybody does.
1: I actually worked with Ray Kurzweil for about 10 years and co-produced a a movie called The Singularity Is Near With Him. But I've always been a a bit of a skeptic on a lot of his predictions about the... but. more recently, more than ever recently, I've been waking up and saying, oh, this is what exponential growth really feels like from an experiential
2: standpoint. I mean, it's, it's good. I've seen Ray give his talk and stuff. And I'm like, I respect him a lot. But I've been like, oh, really? Like, like yeah. and, But on the other hand, it's like, oh, my God. They were, the people in 2012 who were talking about this were right about everything. Right? They weren't right about the model. They didn't know it would be LLMs. They thought it'd be a different kind of approach. But like, now, they might be wrong in the future. We have no idea. Technology follows S-curves, not infinite exponentials most of the time. So at some point, the technology curves out. We just don't know when that's going to be.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen, but I think it's easy to predict that we're about to see a lot of change. At IFTF this year, we have always have an annual research theme. And this year, our theme is changing the register, meaning how, how can we change the conversation? How do we change the kind of Overton window? How do we change the framing on different topics? Right now, we're about to do a whole session on changing the register on learning. Any thoughts on how you think this has already changed the register on learning and how it might do so in the future?
2: I just gave a talk with my wife who's another researcher on the topic and we just gave a webinar and normally a few people show up to these things. We had 4,800 people on a Zoom call because teachers from around the world who wanted to figure out what to do. Like the thing that is different about this technology is the shockwave is hitting everywhere at once. And so I think that trying to change the register in some ways is a little bit – I would say pointless. I mean, I think people need what they want you to take a position on the future, right? Like, it's here. This is not really so. Like, the policy discussion is lagging, right? The all these other discussions are lagging. This is in people's hands right now. So, to the extent of this change changing the register, it's how do we empower people to get the good stuff out? How do we stop the bad stuff from happening? Not to not to poo poo your mission. I think it's really important, but like, that's usually a policy based mission. This is, in, I mean, I have educators from the Philippines saying, like, I've got GPT 4. What do I do, right? From India, like, people who teach university and Entire university systems. They now have a universal tool that is the best. And I want to point out, they have the best AI in the world. There's no better AI you can get by being in the CIA or by being Bill Gates. Like, it's the exact same model. So, like, I don't know, man, there's a lot of horses out of the barn already. (laughs) I like it.
1: You brought up coding. Often when people think about these large language models, they're thinking more about English, Spanish, French. But Clearly, the coding side of this is big. Could you give us kind of a, a little bit of an introduction of like what the coding capabilities are and
2: what you're particularly excited about? So level one of the coding capabilities is it speeds up your coding. It's an autocomplete just like anything else. And even the early model version of Copilot, which was not even using one of the recent GPT models in a controlled experiment at Microsoft, increased the speed of coders by 50%, right? And that's before the release of ChatGPT and these other models, which are genuinely much more stunning. But I think even more profoundly... You can code now. I don't know who you are, but you can code now. Whoever's listening, like I, I can't code in Python. I've coded fourteen Python programs in the last week. I just the things I've done in the last day were like, hey, here's a census database. Go through it, GPT, create programs to analyze a bunch of interesting trends. Show me the trend lines, graph them out. It creates Python programs. It runs them spontaneously. It fixes any problems. Done and dusted. One of the few programming languages I know, besides Stata, is a programming language that you used in the early '80s to learn how to do coding called turtle graphics logo you'd move it'd be like moving a little pen around a screen and i was like huh i wonder what if i can use this so i could code in my half logo and then have it converted to javascript python COBOL, a the directions for cad cam file a physical instructions for how to launch satellites so they'd be in the exact structure of whatever like it doesn't matter like it wants intent programming is a way of converting human intent into action Do we need that anymore? I mean, in the short term, sure. But this change is pretty profound. Like, I've been doing a lot of Python and, again, don't know the language at all.
1: Any thoughts on how this might actually change the future of work as well? I mean, as organizations, traditionally, I mean, before, before now, there was the developers. And yet, everything had to go through developers if you wanted to create software.
2: I mean, but that's barely the beginning of it. Organizations are structured by org charts, right? And the org chart was invented in the 1840s in response to railroads, the first multinational organization, right? Since then, we've had a few other major revolutions, all tied technology revolutions, right? So if you're a coder, you know about agile, right? These, all these techniques for, for this stuff are all based on the limitations of people and our ability to communicate with each other. Right, So what happens if an individual programmers can keep coding as long until they're done for the day or just check over work? right? And the Or the AI can create seven versions of a program that you test rather than you having to work on one thing and it, you're, and it does the QA work for you. What happens if it reports to you like gives you assignments instead of you having to go to a stand-up meeting? How does that change work? How does it change work with middle managers who are writing reports are just going to hit a button that report's created to say to another person who's going to hit a button to read that report and send an email back about how good the report was? We don't know, but the change in the structure of work is definitely going to happen. I mean, it's going to be slower than people think, but faster than they want.
1: We've been chatting with some folks from the, the Khan Academy team about their Khan Migo project. I'm curious if you've been following that. Any thoughts? I know you've written a bunch about AI tutors. A- any perspectives on on their approach to it, or are there other organizations developing AI based? Ed tech at this point that you find to be
2: interesting. Oh, absolutely! But I think I think what the Khan Academy is doing really cool with Khan Amigo, I think it's very clear these AI tutors of the future. But the crazy stuff though is. You don't need Khan Academy to do this, right? Like I have spent years building these games, very elaborate games for teaching that are awesome, right? Your fake mission to Saturn that I co-authored with Interactive Fiction Writer, our team and the guy who won the Hugo Award last year. And, like they're amazing simulations that like take you through running a startup company. It's been like 10 years of my life building this stuff, wrote books on it, whatever. I was able to type a paragraph into GPT four, like, hey, you are a negotiation instructor. And it was able to simulate 70% of what I could do in my sims that took years and a team of 14 people to do like the, the thing is not so much that you need conmigo is if I give you the right paragraph and you paste it into bing bing is going to teach you like at a level that's pretty high We've never seen that before. So like these AI tutors are amazing, but they're also already ubiquitous. You just don't know it yet. So essentially you're saying ChatGPT and Bing are tutors at this point if you know how to interact with them? They're general purpose technologies and they they democratize ed tech. You are a teacher in Uganda. You, congratulations, you have a universal tutoring tool. My wife and I have been writing white papers about this. Like it's, I give you the right prompt. It's a paragraph. And by the way, you don't need it from me. Just experiment. There's no magic in prompting. Like I need to teach my students a lesson. They are in rural Uganda. They're middle school students without a lot of math background. I want to teach them about entropy. Give me six examples of how I can teach them about entropy. Create an activity for doing that. Write an email to my students introducing the concept to them. Write the test that needs to come as a result. Figure out how to interleave that into our next chapter. Make it easier module for the students who are having trouble and harder module of the students that aren't. Congratulations! What's done.
1: So, what is it going to take for teachers to be able to, to use these technologies as you describe? I mean, right now, four thousand of them have to come to your webinar. Like, how is how are how is this kind of next generation of teachers or the existing generation of teachers really going to be able to transition? And what kinds of resources? I mean, I know you can set. Say, you're saying that these chat interfaces are open ended, general purpose. But is there? I mean, do you see examples of like other layers of technology? being built on these are specifically designed for teachers so
2: yes and right like the thing is, again, this is bad software, right? Like when you try to use LLMs for software stuff, they are bad at it because they act differently every time. So if I want to replace Salesforce or, or Blackboard or whatever technology I'm using with this, it's rough because you get different answers. Sometimes it'll work great. Sometimes it'll refuse. Sometimes it'll be like, actually, I came up with a better way of solving this problem. I'm not going to use the approach that you tried to tell me to use. And so it doesn't work in a predictable way in the way that a software does. So yes, there'll be integrations with other systems. But again, the thing about this is it's a person. So what I tell teachers is use this as your teaching assistant at first. Give it the stuff you don't want to do. Write the assignments that I don't want to write. Give it more advice to students. How do I free up my time and do more educational impact and less grunt work? Now you want to be careful at this point about giving the AI too much data, right? It absolutely is, but it's absolutely great at grading. It does a better job grading than most TAs do, right? You don't want to give it private student information under any circumstances. By the way, my students, I am not grading you with the AI yet, but but you know, there it does a whole bunch of kinds of tasks that you couldn't do otherwise, right? And so I think the short term is individual adoption. That's what we're seeing everywhere. There's a teacher in the school who will figure out a few prompts and they'll share with other teachers. Like it's going to spread virally in that kind of way before – long before the ad tech companies get a handle on it.
1: What's some of the other advice you give to educators who are just getting into this? They're just, they've heard this is a thing. They don't know where to start. What are some, What's some advice you give them in terms of getting their hands dirty and really understanding more than just a call and response, like oh, a single question and answer?
2: I mean, first of all, use it for everything. There's no magic to prompting. What you want to do is give the AI context. Hello. You are a teaching assistant who helps with X. You want to give it as much information as you can, paste it a lesson plan or for being pointed and asking to look up a topic. You want to experiment with different kinds of approaches step by step often works really well first gather the information step two you should go you should tell me what you know, the lesson plan step three create the lesson plan that works quite well. But and then you interact with it make the lesson plan easier make it harder like use this like a person and you'll be in much better shape.
1: So much has rained down on us from the AI gods in the last since November. I'm curious, like just moving forward, what are the kind of technologies? Is there anything you're waiting for that you'd really like to see happen, or any sort of capability
2: or tool that you that you think is really going to be game changing from where we are already now? I mean, the pieces are there, right? But turning on the full multimodal aspect of GPT four, which means it can look at images and create images and interact with with the world. Visually is super interesting, right? These ideas of plugins, which don't work that well yet, which is that that GPT can call Mathematica to do something or Wolfram to do math from. That's interesting, and that it doesn't work very well yet. I, I use it, but it doesn't work very well yet. Like, there's a few things that we already know are in place. I don't know what's out in six months, right? Like, I could tell you we're probably definitely going to have text to video is already basically here, right? What happens next? I I don't know. Like, I, I have two minds. At On one hand, I'm like, let's see what happens. This is exciting. Let's see what happens next. The other is. Like it'd be nice if things froze, if, if it turns out it was really hard to advance the state of the art past today, because today's already going to change our lives a lot.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. And then just beyond the technology, is there any experimentation or research that you'd really like to see funded or conducted right now?
2: everything we don't even know how what the best way to prompt a system is like it's all magic words and and guessing we don't know what the effects of performance are we don't know whether this affects the best performers or lowest performers we don't know about it it's impacted education does this work as a tutor for whom does it help for whom does it not help what extra supports needed what prompts are needed to be better for tutoring we don't know anything anything at all so we're making a lot of guesses based on previous research we don't know a thing
1: Yeah, we're just at the beginning of a a journey. Well, Ethan, I know that you're somebody I follow to try to stay abreast of this as it's moving very quickly. Who do you follow? What are some of the resources that
2: you look to? To me, it's just trying to stay close to the ground on these tools, right? So I follow some artists who do interesting artwork on this. I follow people who are at these companies releasing papers, right? I'm trying to be as close to the ground as possible, but the main thing is just use these systems. I just can't emphasize that enough. Like you should be, if if you haven't clocked 40 or 50 hours using these things at this point, you absolutely should. Should be. You spend that much time learning to do any other skill, this is the most important skill you can learn. And that will tell you, by the way, what its limitations are and what you can do in the future also.
1: I really appreciate you joining us today on Future Now, Ethan. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me. This was terrific.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At iftf, We believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.